Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brentsberger, and some of you might know me as Astro Athens. So welcome, welcome. So happy to see all of you here. What's up? Seeing everybody, Mace, Adara, uh, Kertavia, hello, and one other, not sure who you are. Oh, you just, you just disappeared. That could be a friend joining us from a web browser, by the way, which you could also tune in live from in case you don't have the app. Um, so hello, so glad to see you all here. Thank you, by the way, for bearing with me by pushing today's episode back a half hour. Totally lost track of time hanging out with my cat. True story. Uh, so <laughs> um, yeah, she can she can definitely be a handful. If anyone has a feline friend, go ahead and comment that in the chat and let me know. Um, we just got actually a new litter box for her. It's one of those like robotic ones. And it is, uh, it's, it's has a, has a little bit of a learning curve for our little furry friend. So, uh, that's, re that's resulted in quite a lot of cleanups. But anyway, today's episode is not going to be talking about my cat. It's going to be talking about all of the wonderful, fabulous space events that are happening in our night sky this week. Um, so if you are new to space talk, welcome. Uh, this is a recurring episode we tend to do on the first Monday, sometimes Tuesday of every week where we'll typically look ahead into the upcoming week for things like different constellations that are visible, planetary alignments, uh, deep sky objects, which can be visible in the north or southern or both hemispheres. So we do go over quite a lot of that as well to try to cover every part of the globe. Um, and I'm so happy we have a chat feature because I would love to ask if, if any of my friends here are listening from if you're in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere, just leave me a comment so I kind of know who some of my listeners are here. So northern hemisphere, north of the equator, imagine cutting the globe in half. Southern hemisphere friends, south of the equator. Uh, very helpful too if you don't know your longitude and latitude. Uh, you can go to a really great website. I'm going to type it in the chat right now called geodatos.net. Just sent that over in the chat and you could put in your city. So this way you can know what your longitude and latitude is, because when it comes to astronomy, sometimes there are space objects that are only visible like in, you know, between like a certain degree north and certain degree south latitude. It can be very small parameters that we're working with. So it's very helpful to know where exactly you're located. Um, especially this week, because we, we've got, uh, let's see, we've got a few looking forward, a few different space objects, deep sky objects that are visible. One of them is actually my favorite messier object, so I'm really excited to jump into that. Um, but let's go ahead and just check the chat real quick. I see I've got a lot of friends over here typing in. Awesome. Northern Hemisphere, perfect northern northern. Okay, so it doesn't look like we have anyone in the Southern Hemisphere, which is pretty cool. Um, again, I will still cover Southern Hemisphere because there are objects that are visible there sometimes. And well, actually, you know, a lot of the times as well. Actually, there is an eclipse approaching at the end of this month, which is visible to the Southern Hemisphere. And then in August, there is a total solar eclipse visible to the Northern Hemisphere. And it's actually going to be passing through Texas. So as you, you may or may not know, your, your New York girl, your Brooklynite, me, uh, is now a living in Texas. So I'm going to be catching quite a lot of dark sky things. And I'm very excited for that. Lots of astronomy opportunities out here. Big reason why I moved here. Um, and Adara, yes, I love it. <laughs> I would listen to an episode of you just talking about your cat. Oh, that's so, that's so cool. And Hector, you saw the one in 2017 in Oregon. That's so great. That was a really, uh, 
I think just like a very famous one because it stretched across most of the, the the states in the United States. So it was at least a really big push in the media here in the U.S. Um, if you guys remember that, I was in New York at the time, so I only had a partial eclipse, but I went to um, down by the World Trade Center, uh, downtown financial district of Manhattan, and I went to the roof of the World Trade Center building. I, I was shocked I pulled it off. I had actually gone in the day before and uh, was a volunteer at a few museums in New York and just kind of asked them. I was like, hey, uh, so I'm a volunteer, just wondering if I could do some coverage of the eclipse from like the roof, and they let me. And I built a giant box planetarium, which you could do. Uh, it's really easy. You just take like a pin, like a safety pin, and you poke a hole into a piece of paper, and you tape that over a, a little opening on one side of the box. You could check DIY experiments for this. It'll be a lot more straightforward than me talking about it. And then on the other side, you'll have um, like a black piece of paper that the shadow would project onto. So this is a safe way to observe a total solar eclipse if you don't have solar filter glasses. And I like basically went running around all of like New York City and just other people had built boxes as well, planetarium boxes. And it was just, it was a great, it was a great time. Uh, let's see. Awesome. Oh, I'm, I'm loving the, how much this chat really livens up this, uh, this, this podcast. I have to say, this is such a wonderful feature. I'm so happy that this has been added onto here because I think it really makes uh, the live feature so much more exciting. It feels like I'm having a conversation with you guys. This is awesome. You saw it in Tennessee. Yes, Adara, that's awesome. Uh, Mario, you saw it in our Oregon as well. Another really great place, and I encourage you guys to Google this if you haven't seen it, is uh, a picture of the eclipse taken from an airplane really rare footage, uh, very, very rare images uh, for those who catch that. I'm going to actually just look it up for fun right now. It's just so I can kind of see it at the same time as you guys. But type in total solar eclipse from airplane and you'll see that. And there is, and from what I heard, because I had friends who wanted to purchase these tickets uh, to get this flight that was like perfectly at the same time as the eclipse as it was going across the path of totality. It cost a lot of money. Um, I just remember, I, I can't remember exactly. I was definitely in, in, I think the thousands of US dollar, like $1,000, $2,000 for just a you know regular regular ticket. Um, but it was a lot of people wanted to, to book this. And so Real, and I, I understand why. If you look at these pictures, it looks incredible. There are some time lapses as well. I can imagine this flight was probably packed with quite a lot of professional photographers. Um, and I know we've got quite a few professional photographers as well in the chat, like Hector, by the way. So happy to see that you're here. Um, and actually, look, it looks like he's sharing images. This is super cool. So you guys should definitely check that out. Um, this is so cool. Yeah, this is this is awesome, Hector. Um, Really, really cool. Yeah, so we've got a professional astrophotographer here in the chat. And yes, uh, Astro KV, you've got to visit um, the U.S. as well. Definitely, definitely needs to happen. Um, okay, so let's jump into some space events we've got going on this week. Um, so I'll typically look, uh, I'll, I'll typically read off of actually a, uh, a newsletter I send out usually during the weekend. Uh, which has, if you guys want to subscribe to it, you can. Um, you could just go to my website, astroathens.com, if you'd rather kind of see a visual version of what we're going to talk about. And uh, it's called The Weekly Transmission. And I start off with astronomy word of the week or astronomy term of the week, kind of depending on 
what, what, what I want to discuss, if it's a word or a term. And then we go into our must-see celestial events, which include planets, asteroids, uh, comets sometimes, constellations, and uh, that's, that's about it, I would say, like kind of other things you might see that are pretty, pretty nice if you're going stargazing. And of course, I put in my interview there with Adara as well. So if you guys haven't listened to that episode, that was such a great conversation. Um, I'm so, so happy that that got to happen because we were talking about it for so long. Um, so that is now published here on this app. Oh, can you just confirm that you guys could hear me? Because I just got a notification saying, check your internet connection. Um, so I'm just going to give it a moment and just make sure that you all could hear me loud and clear. Awesome. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Um, and then I go into deep sky objects. So these are galaxies. These are uh, globular clusters, star clusters, um, difference between a globular cluster and an open star cluster is globular clusters are usually composed of a lot more stars than an open star cluster. Uh, think about it being more tight knit. And open means they're a little bit looser. There's not as much gravitational influence. So there's not as many stars kind of collecting together. And globular clusters are usually made of much older stars, very, very old stars. And there can be up to 10 million in a cluster. But an open star cluster like the Pleiades, which is also known as the Seven Sisters, because we usually can only see about seven of the stars with our eyes, unaided eyes, so no telescope or binoculars, actually has somewhere around, we learned this recently, actually, it's like 1,200 stars. Uh, I, I thought it was closer to like 100 stars, but it actually has over 1,000. And um, open star clusters can range between in, in like the thousands to even tens of thousands. Uh, but there's usually less, they're usually younger stars, hotter stars, bluer stars as well. Uh, so that's a little bit, a little bit of that. And so deep sky objects are typically those things, uh, things that are really far away. You'll for sure need some kind of eye equipment. So binoculars or a telescope to see these things because they are very dim. They're really far away. And even if you go to a dark sky observing location, like a state park, um, it'll still be kind of tricky to see some of these objects. So I recommend using a telescope or binoculars. And then lastly, we'll kind of jump into space history and then the moon phase, which is really important, uh, depending on if you want to see the Milky Way galaxy or not. So let's actually start off with the moon phase. Uh, so on April 9th, so this uh, we're, we're a couple days past, you know, the kind of the start of the week uh, for, for me or for this, this email transmission. But April 9th was when the moon reached its first quarter phase. So it's a half moon. The half moon is either the first quarter or the last quarter. So right now it's growing. It's growing from first quarter and eventually into a waxing gibbous. So it's starting to get bigger and then into a full moon. So it's fully luminous, fully like uh, it's, it's uh, reflecting the light from the sun. And then it starts to shrink to waning. And I always like to say this kind of, I think of waxing as like, you know, you, not that we wax our hair anymore, but if you do wax your hair, uh, that's usually because your hair is growing. So a waxing gibbous moon would be because it's growing. Um, waning, I like to think of it as it's like whining. So it's shrinking. So it's waning. Uh, that's, that's, that's my best way <laughs> that I taught myself to try to remember back in, uh, in high school when I was taking astronomy class, I would be quizzed on this stuff. Um, 
So this is when it reached first quarter. So now it's getting more and more full and luminous. Uh, so it's going to be tricky if you were planning to do any type of Milky Way chasing, which is if you want to catch the Milky Way galaxy overhead. Uh, and the reason it'll be more tricky, it might be kind of straightforward if you make a guess right now. It'll be because it's more bright. And so it'll block out a lot of the dimmer stars of the Milky Way. So it might be a little bit more tricky to catch. So I usually recommend if you're going to go see the Milky Way, wait for a new moon because it's going to be totally dark. Um, okay, awesome. Let's see. You saw the Pleiades with your with the naked eye around December. That's awesome, Astro KV. Yeah, so the Pleiades is is one of those kind of rare clusters you can see with out a telescope or binoculars. The first time I saw it with my unaided eye was actually at a state park um, so somewhere out here in Texas. I don't remember which one it was. I've been to quite a few. And um, it was in a picture. I had taken a photo with my iPhone and I was able to see it right above my head. And I actually didn't even notice it until uh, a friend of mine on Instagram had commented it. It was like, hey, that's the Pleiades right above your head. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even didn't even realize that. Um, so it's very a great great cluster to to catch without a telescope or binoculars. Okay, so um, let's jump into musty celestial events. If we're going to do this a little out of order, we're going to go with astronomy term of the week at the end. I'll usually try to make that as relevant to the events as possible, but it's there wasn't really anything that inspired me to use as a word this week, so I actually kind of just chose a term that I thought of, but. Um, going into musty celestial events. So April 11th, asteroid Pallas, so this is an asteroid, is in conjunction with the sun at around 11 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, conjunction, if you wanted to look that up real quick and kind of just look at a diagram. Um, so when you type in like planetary conjunction um, with the sun, uh, it usually has to do with the Earth's orbit, the sun position and then whatever this object is. So we've mentioned different planets being in conjunction like Venus, Mars, Mercury. So the asteroid, uh, once it reaches conjunction, uh, it's now aligned between, so its orbit is the furthest followed by the sun and then earth. So again, it'd be a lot easier to sort of look at this on, um, uh, on like an image, just kind of like look it up real quick online. You should be able to visually see that. But it's basically in a really straight line where all three of us are lined up. So Earth, the sun, and the asteroid. Uh, you won't be able to see the asteroid because the sun's going to be blocking it. Uh, but this is really important for astronomers who are tracking this asteroid because uh, then they know, okay, well, I'm not going to try to point telescopes at it right now because the sun, you know, it's it's perfectly in line with the sun. So I'm going to wait until it passes conjunction, and then we'll be able to, once again, continue our observations of that asteroid. Okay, let's go back into this. So that is April 11th. That's today. Okay, cool. So today, sweet, uh, this evening, April 11th at 11 p.m. Whoa, lots of 11s going on. Um, and let's see. Uh, oh, did I just see something about a birthday? Uh, oh, guess not. Okay. I, I got so excited. I love it when one of these events happens to line up with someone's birthday. Um, oh, yes. Uh, you're right, Astro KB. That was during uh, my birthday post. So it was a while back. April 12th, Jupiter passes 0 0.1 degree north of Neptune. This is a very, very small thing. So I want you all right now to look at your pinky 
so the width of your pinky is about one degree in the sky. So if you're stretching your arm all the way out and looking at your wall, imagine the wall is the sky, your pinky is about one degree in an astronomical degree distance. So 0.1 degree is very, very, very small. Uh, I actually can't even really fathom that right now. Uh, so um, this is why, by the way, that things start to come in like arc minutes and arc, arc seconds, but we'll get into that another time because I haven't really like properly been able to explain that without it sounding like I'm tripping all over my own words. Um, but 0.1 degree is very, very small. And this is what happens when objects are much further from us than say like, you know, than say Jupiter and Neptune, which are relatively close compared to another planetary system. So what do we do when things are really far away and they're smaller than say the width of our pinky in a distance? This is where something like arc minutes and arc seconds come in. Um, and we'll get into that again in the future, but I recommend probably looking at a diagram. It has to do with a, an angle, angular distance uh, between the edge of the object and then our perception of it. Okay, moving into other stuff. Uh, I included this last week, and I'm going to include this again because this is happening all month long. Mercury is visible in the constellation Aries just after sunset during evening twilight. Uh, if you haven't heard the term twilight before, other than, other than the movie, um, which, you know, kudos to that movie. I don't know who else, you know, watched that back in, for me, it was college when it came out. I got tricked into watching New Moon. Uh, my friend bought the tickets and she said we were going to see something else. I think it was Sherlock Holmes. And all of a sudden, twilight began. And I was like, no, but it actually wasn't that bad. Uh, I, I, I definitely had uh, lower expectations of the movie. And I think it was actually quite nice. But point is twilight, <laughs> evening twilight is somewhere around 45 minutes after sunset. So it's right when the sky is getting darker, um, but it's still kind of like a dark blue color. It's not totally black yet. It's not a black sky. Uh, it's a kind of dark blue sky. And this is when stars start to become visible to the naked eye. That is twilight. If you want an actual kind of like breakdown description of it, it's when the sun is 18 degrees below the horizon. You can look at images of this as well because there's also a nautical twilight, which uh, I guess it obviously, you know, nautical for, for those who are uh, uh, sailors and out at sea. And then there's other types of twilight as well and other types of horizons and sun positions. But for astronomical twilight, 18 degrees below the horizon is where the sun is. So this is that right where that sky color would be, right when stars start to become visible. You also have all month long a great view of M42, which is the great nebula in Orion. Uh, a lot of you probably, if you've been out at all at night this past month, two months, three months, uh, you probably have seen Orion. Very easy constellation to spot, the three stars that make up its belt. And then you have the four stars, the shoulders and the kneecaps. I think it actually is technically the knees or maybe it's the feet. It's the feet of the Orion uh, constellation. Um, and then you have the Orion constellation does expand a little bit more where you have his arm and then this uh, it's like weapon he's holding because he's fighting the serpent. Uh, but underneath the belt is where that nebula is visible. You could actually kind of make it out without using a telescope binocular. So you can kind of see this sort of fuzzy, blurry thing. Uh, but it's definitely a lot easier to really image it with a telescope or binoculars. Um, 
uh, which by the way, you don't need anything fancy, uh, with your binoculars, you can just get like a kind of cheapo pair. That's a 10 by 50. I'll type this in the chat. 10 X 50. All that means is 10 is 10 times magnification of the unaided eye. And then 50 is just the diameter of the lens. So um, being able to see it at 10 times of your own vision is already significantly better than, you know, not, not being able to really see it much at all with, without any help of that. So I recommend getting some binoculars. Now let's move into our deep sky objects. So if anyone here loves deep sky objects, let me know. Uh, what is your favorite deep sky object? Uh, is it a galaxy? Is it a nebula? Side note, I'm looking at my cat right now. thought she would run out of the room because I'm being so loud. And she is like, just her head's like upside down and just like passed out. Like just a hardcore. So she, her foot is twitching right now. She's She is in REM, rapid eye movement. She is for sure just zonked out. Uh, it's, it's the cutest thing ever. Um, she's usually not in here when, I, when I'm on my podcast. But um, okay, so moving into the stuff this, this week. So on April 13th, the massive galaxy in Centaurus A, also known as NGC 5128, uh, that, that's the catalog number, by the way. We can just call it Centaurus A. Uh, sounds a little more comfortable, I think, with our language to call it just a name that's uh, probably just easier to remember than some kind of alphanumerical thing that doesn't have any reference. Um, it does have a reference in the catalog. It has a purpose. It follows the previous object that was, uh, was discovered. Um, and it's just in a numerical order. And it also is usually based on the area of the sky as well. Um, we did an episode once on how space objects are named. This was a recurring series that I believe probably just came to an end because I don't, I don't think there's any more space objects we can cover or talk about. Um, and we talked about where galaxies get their names from. And when it comes to the new general catalog, which is NGC, uh, this is a uh, another catalog of objects that came after the Messier catalog, which was made by Charles Messier. Um, and this is, uh, again, a bunch of other space objects that uh, you can detect. You can figure out where exactly it's located based on its name. And if you look that up in the catalog, and you'll be able to find that info. If you look up the catalog uh, information, find things like its right ascension and declination. These two terms, think of it like longitude, latitude. It's basically like your east, west, and north, south position of that object. Um, and so, yeah. Okay, so this visible, this object's visible, uh, it, but it can't be seen much further north of 26 degrees north latitude. So I chose Mexico City for this one. Um, if you don't know your latitude, uh, this is why I sent the link earlier, geodatos.net. You can click that link and you can check out what exactly your longitude latitude is. Um, a little different than your right ascension declination. That that's something you'll need to look up for an astronomical object separately. Uh, but you know we can get that get to that another time. And by the way, if you guys have any questions about any of the stuff I'm mentioning, I know it's a lot of kind of crazy terminology, and it can be like either you know common sense to some of us, or it could be totally like new to some of us. Just definitely uh, put a question in for me. Um, oh, looks like we got favorite deep sky object is black holes 
white holes and wormholes. Well, well, the only thing I have to argue about this, this, this great comment is, uh, we, we haven't found any white holes or wormholes yet. So, uh, I guess in, in, in theory, it, it can be your favorite objects, but, um, but, but unfortunately we haven't been able to see those just yet. Um, Hector, yes, you can see the Galilean moons using binoculars. Uh, yes, you do know. Yeah, I remember us talking about this before. It's really fascinating stuff, kind of chatting about uh, the, these three different types of cosmological uh, rips in the fabric of space. Uh, a wormhole would be, hypothetically, if a black hole and white hole were to connect via a bridge, like the Einstein-Rosen bridge, this is what a wormhole would be. And so you would you know, theoretically, in a way, possibly, if you can do this as, as, as a person, or maybe just information or energy can fall into a black hole, potentially pass through the wormhole and exit out through a white hole. And uh, this is this was actually in uh, Einstein's theory of special relativity. Uh, and I believe it's also in his his GR, his general relativity theory as well. But uh, has it has it been quite found just yet, but doesn't mean it does exist because he mentioned black holes before those were actually uh, discovered and like proven, which is really interesting. Okay. So, um, the Centaurus A galaxy is visible again. Mexico city is what I chose for this because that is within that latitude for the North hemisphere. Then we'll do Southern hemisphere. It rises around 10 30 PM at about 21 degrees above your South Eastern horizon. So get out your compass, get out your space app, whatever it is to help you understand your position, face your Southeast horizon. Um, 21 degrees is not high up. So if you have trees or a building in the way, you're not going to see it. I recommend going on your rooftop or on a hill and then 21 degrees, uh, stick out your fist all the way and rotate it. So your thumb is facing up from your index finger knuckle to your pinky knuckles, 10 degrees. So if you just stack your fists on top of one another, the top of your top fist will be that 20 degrees. And if you want to really be particular and be like, make sure you get in that extra one degree, uh, go ahead and take your pinky and uh, put your pinky on top. Cause we learned earlier that our pinky is one degree when it comes to stuff in the sky. And then it's going to reach its highest point of only 27 degrees. So not that high up at around 1:36 AM. Uh, this again, this is local time. So this is local to Mexico city. Uh, and this is going to be over your Southern horizon. And I believe Mexico city is actually, I think it's actually East coast time because I think at that part of Mexico city, or maybe it's central it might be central time. Uh, and then for anyone, in the, I know no one here said they're in the Southern hemisphere. So I'll just go through real quick. Rises at 721 PM at 29 degrees above your Southeastern horizon, reaching its highest point of 80 degrees. Lucky Southern Hemisphere friends, 80 degrees is very high up. You don't have to worry about any type of obstruction of view. This will be around 1242 a.m. Now, April 14th, my favorite. This is the Whirlpool Galaxy. I love the Whirlpool Galaxy. It's my favorite, favorite, favorite deep sky object uh, galaxy, even though I should be biased towards the Milky Way, but it's, this is my absolute favorite. Uh, first time I had seen a picture of it was I think in college and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever because this was the first time I learned that galaxies collide with each other and the pictures of the Whirlpool Galaxy, if you look it up, also known as M51, 
it start, it's on a collision course with a dwarf galaxy. It's going to gobble up the dwarf galaxy. They're going to merge. They're going to have this beautiful cosmological dance, and they're going to start to become one galaxy. So they merge and become one. Isn't that just so beautiful? Like, like space is so poetic. I hope some of this is inspiring Adara to write a new song. Um, yes, Adara, actually, and Adara has a guitar with the Whirlpool Galaxy on it. I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it or is it not? I think it is. Um, yes, yes, you actually wrote a, co a comment. Awesome. It's the image on your guitar. Yeah, it is such a great picture. And uh, especially the ultraviolet images that came in of the Whirlpool Galaxy. Super duper cool. Um, so it's visible only to the Northern Hemisphere. So sorry, I'm so sorry to my Southern Hemisphere friends, it won't be visible. But to my Northern Hemisphere friends, not only is it visible, but it is like perfectly in view. Um, so let's see, I have a lot of words here. Let me just organize my thoughts here. Okay, so it's going to start to rise at around 8.56 p.m. Central Daylight Time. I went ahead and just put in Austin, Texas for this because this is where I'm based. So you can go ahead and put in your own location uh, if you want. Uh, actually, where you could do that is, uh, I believe it's on Sky and Telescope's website, and you can check this out. But uh, either way, Northern Hemisphere, it'll be arriving, uh, rising at about 36 degrees above your northeastern horizon, so face northeast. Uh, but if you want to wait for it to reach its highest point of 73 degrees, which is ideal, ideal height, 73 degrees, um, Another perspective, if you don't want to use your fists to measure in the sky, directly overhead, if you have your finger on your, the top of your head, the crown of your head, that's 90 degrees because the horizon is straight out. So that makes a 90 degree angle. So directly overhead is 90, which is also known as the zenith, uh, which is actually an Arabic word. Uh, so zenith would be the uh, proper pronunciation of that. And that would be directly overhead. So 73 degrees is just a little bit, a little bit angled downward. So it should be pretty comfortable on your neck as well to be looking up and not have to look all the way up and maybe lay down on, on a blanket or anything. Um, and it's going to reach that at about 1.30 a.m. So it'll be a late night, but, you know, I think we kind of know this when it comes to astronomy and stargazing. We know it's going to be a late night. We know that when we go stargazing, we're probably going to be up late. So do this, go camping, go camping on the 14th. Um, if you want to do this, if you have clear skies, it was thunderstorming here. Um, but hopefully by the 14th, it'll be clear. Maybe I'll go camping, although it's been very hot here lately. Um, and it's going to be visible all night. So all, all night, it's going to be such a great time. So if you are an astrophotographer and you want to do long exposure, um, which is, you know, having your camera on this object for hours and hours and hours, uh, this is probably the night to do it uh, because you can actually image it all the way until morning twilight or dawn twilight, which is around 6 a.m. And that's by then it'll be located 35 degrees above your northwestern horizon. So it is going to be decreasing, you know, it's going to be going down. It'll be decreasing, going from 73 degrees down to 35 so, of course, if, you know, you're going to want your telescope to be tracking that. Uh, so, you know, you can use probably some sites like a, an app I really like is Sky Safari Plus for this. So you can actually track its actual degree movement per minute or per hour. You might want to go per minute, actually, uh, depending. Uh, Hector might actually know better than, than me on this one. Uh, but definitely, if you are going to be doing some photography, go ahead and track that. 
Um, I did image the Whirlpool Galaxy once before. I used my telescope. I have a unistellar Equinox telescope. It is a digital telescope. I hook up with my phone. And uh, really awesome, awesome company. It's originally a rental. I'm an ambassador of this, of this, uh, of this company. Uh, they're super, super cool. They also have a citizen science program with SETI, which is uh, uh, Frank Drake's company, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So if you ever want to do some of your own citizen science work from your backyard, I highly recommend checking out Unistellar. Uh, I think this scope is actually on sale too, if you wanted to look into that. Now it is a digital telescope. There are ones that have an eyepiece if you want to actually look with your eye. Otherwise, if you don't mind just having your phone hooked up to it, you can just get the Equinox one. The Equinox 2 is the one with the, the eyepiece. It has a little bit higher price point. Um, but it's great because if you are new to this and you don't really know how to set up your camera, like your DSLR camera to a telescope, which I've tried before and I just like need to get the right lenses and, and have a little bit of help. Uh, if you don't know how to do that or you don't know how to set up your telescope to that right ascension and declination we mentioned, so the that northwest, sorry, north, south, east, west position, then I recommend getting a digital telescope. It'll just take a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the hard work out of the way, I would say. Um, okay, awesome. Let's see. We've got oh, I love I love this chat feature so much. This is so awesome. Um, I am heading to let's see pre dawn Venus. This is awesome. Astro KV and everyone just freaking out about Adara's guitar. It is so cool. It is such a such an awesome guitar. Um, we've definitely got to do like yeah so some like live footage of Adara playing that guitar. And let's see, we haven't processed the images yet, Hector. That's totally cool. Um, that's awesome. For deep sky objects, a unistellar scope is great. Uh, with an eyepiece, it'll be hard to spot deep sky objects since they're so faint. Yep, yep, totally. Uh, even on top of that too, I've, I've noticed it's also just tricky trying to have the scope lined up perfectly, especially if it's to that you know 0.1 degree of a difference. You could be in like, a totally different galaxy. If your telescope is off by just a small hair of a degree, you can literally be looking at it like the wrong galaxy, which is just so, so funny to me. Um, or you could be looking at the wrong star, you know, cluster, uh, really interesting stuff. Okay, so that is about everything for our space objects. Lastly, we're going to go into our space history and then astronomy term of the week. Um, for our space history, I only put two events here. Um, first, April 9th in 1780, Charles Messier, French astronomer, uh, who uh, was a comet hunter originally, he discovered the globular cluster in Hydra, known as M68. Uh, remember we said earlier, globular clusters, much older stars, uh, much more stars, like can be like millions and millions, up to 10 million stars that can be in a, in a globular cluster. And Charles Messier, uh, he didn't like these objects when he saw them. He didn't know what he, he knew what some of them were, but to him, he was a comet hunter. He wanted to find comets, and so when he made the Messier catalog, he titled it "Objects to Avoid." Uh, so he was doing this kind of as a favor to other comet hunters out there, because I guess this was like kind of the hot thing at the time in the field of astronomy. Everyone wanted to look for comets because they were really fascinating and interesting. And we realized that like they weren't a sign of the Earth coming to its end, but instead they were a you know beautiful space object kind of flying past us and they can be quite rare. So 
Uh, that being said, that is when he discovered the globular cluster in Hydra, known as M68. And then on April 12th, tomorrow in 1961, the very first person ever went to ever go to space happened. The very first person, Yuri Gagarin. Uh, he was a Russian cosmonaut, and this was in uh, 1961. Um, this was, it was actually during this time, there was quite a lot of tension. I won't go too much into the history, but uh, because between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, we were basically in this kind of like competition of who's going to put the first person in space and um, ended up being uh, Yuri Gagarin. Uh, first uh, American was, of course, John Glenn. And then the first woman was Valentina Tereshkova, which was also a Russian cosmonaut uh, just two years later. And then uh, Sally Ride was the first American uh, female astronaut to go to space. And so this this was a really huge deal. There's a, a space party named after <laughs> this astronaut, uh, this cosmonaut. And um, that was actually yesterday and the day before. Yesterday was the one in uh, Florida, Kennedy Space Center was uh, the Yuri's Night. And then on Saturday was the Yuri's Night in Los Angeles. So if anyone went, let me know how it was. I hope it was it was really awesome and that it was good. Alrighty. So last thing here that we're going to chat about in today's episode of what's happening in the space this week in, in space and in, yeah, in the space, in the sky is astronomy term of the week. I chose stellar wind, also solar wind, uh, as a little bit of a reminder, our sun is a star. It's our host star. So it's kind of hosting us. Imagine like a host at a dinner party. Our sun is that for us and our whole neighborhood of planets. And we orbit around the sun. And so it is our star and we call it the sun. And because we call it the sun, we have terms like solar, solar flare, solar wind. Uh, but it's not that much different than stellar wind. Stellar is just for other stars that aren't our host. So other stars we see in the sky, all of them emit wind. And uh, these are actually energized particles that are emitted from the star itself. And this can affect lots of different things. Uh, one thing you have to remember is that the star is spinning. And when you have a rotation, you have a gener a, you know, wind being generated. And on top of that, you have a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that's like kind of happening underneath the, the, the sun's surface. You have a convection zone. And in this area is a lot of charged uh, particles are coming from the core of the sun being pushed up and it's starting to get pressed out through the corona sphere. And then it starts to get pushed through the corona. And then it can either, you know, if it's, if it's enough pressure and it's enough like uh, temperature, it can burst into a solar flare. And this is typically when there's um, like also the same thing, a lot of uh, energetic particles coming out or can be a coronal mass ejection. This is actual physical mass. This is plasma coming from the sun itself. And then you have a solar wind or stellar wind. And again, energized particles that are coming. This is what tends to interact with our electromagnetic field, electromagnetic. So think of electricity and magnetism. This is happening around the earth. And when that interacts with the solar wind, I wish you guys could see, I'm like moving my arms around trying to explain it to you guys, but you can't actually see the arms. That's what causes our aurora borealis. So a little, a little bit of a maybe long explanation to sort of go over that. But 
I, would, I recommend looking up an image because it shows sort of the arrows coming of the solar wind, the energized particles. Um, some of the particles are also neutral. So, you know, you might have electrons, you might have protons, you might have just like neutral um, or ionized uh, like hydrogen and other types of elements and things that are coming from our star. And this can then cause interactions with our field that protects the atmosphere, that protects the earth from things like this. If we didn't have the electromagnetic field around earth, when the solar wind would come in, it would completely damage our atmosphere. It would cause our atmosphere to get blown apart and start to not exist anymore. And then life on earth wouldn't exist. This is why there's no life currently from what is of uh, what we know, there's no life on Mars because there's no atmosphere on Mars. There's nothing to protect the planet. And so um, this is because something may have happened is what a lot of astronomers believe now, like a massive collision with um, Mars that would have caused its electromagnetic field to get completely disturbed and disrupted and not be there anymore, not be able to protect the planet from uh, things like solar wind coming from the sun and its atmosphere eventually got damaged, destroyed, didn't exist anymore. The planet started to become really, really cold. And um, now it's dry and it just has these like sometimes really big windstorms. It does have an atmosphere. It's very thin though. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that, that's, that's that. Oh, we're not going to really talk about Mars right now, but um, I recommend, again, looking at some pictures, a little easier to visually look at it than sort of just hear me explain it. At least that's how I feel. Um, but the, yeah, I will say one more thing about the magnetic field. When you have the rotation of earth and its core, so the magnetic field actually comes from energized particles within the core of earth. Cause we have a very, uh, uh, rocky, uh, and like, and metallic core. And, uh, when it passes through then like the poles, the mantle, it starts to get like kind of wrung out. Imagine, cause as the earth is rotating, imagine wringing out like a, a wet towel. And as the water falls out from the wet towel, imagine that as like this electromagnetic field. These are charged particles, electrons. And and you have that then coming out from the poles and the end of the electromagnetic field lines will connect to each other. So when you see, if you look up the uh, EM field or electromagnetic field around Earth, it looks like butterfly wings. And if you were here for the pulsar episode, uh, we spoke about pulsars, how they also have this, this electromagnetic field that's emitted, but because the pulsar, which is a rotating neutron star, very, very small, squish, 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 like, like tiny, like the size of Manhattan, um, a star, because it's spinning so fast, it doesn't give these field lines a chance to connect to each other. So instead, it's spewing out into space like light on a lighthouse. So every time it spins, it comes across, say, maybe our, our field of vision. And that's how we could see it and detect it. Okay, um, that's about everything. Um, but really happy you are all here. Uh, thank you guys so much for, for joining. That's about everything I wanted to go over for today. Um, and um, so happy to, to have every single one of you here. Really excited. Um, I love also this this chat feature. Seriously, kudos to the call-in app. Um, so love too to hear that Astro KV. I love this app. Awesome, especially for Space Talk. I love it too. Um, I'm really happy that there is this feature because now I get to conversate with you guys a little bit more because I know we don't always like to call in and say hello. So um, thank you for that. 
Um, all right. So a couple, I guess, announcements. Um, other than that is we've got an episode on Richard Feynman coming up. I've just scheduled the next two weeks of episodes here on Space Talk. Um, let me see if I can pull up my calendar because I don't quite remember all of them off the top of my head. But tomorrow we've got how the James how the James Webb Space Telescope detected new planets and star formations. So this is something we're going to kind of dive in a little bit more with that new telescope that just launched to space uh, on Christmas. And then on Wednesday is episode 60. So to celebrate episode 60, um, I'm going to have it be an open conversation. This is your chance to call in, ask me anything. It doesn't have to be like, you know, really, really just com- com- like talk about things. Maybe talk to me about like your favorite space object or you can ask me something either about my personal life or if you want to ask me about a specific topic in the field of astronomy, I'll try my best to answer it as well wherever my area of knowledge lies uh, on whatever that, op- that that specific thing is. If it's something to do with particle physics uh, and, and dark matter, um, I'm very, I have very limited knowledge in that because I did not study particle physics in my, uh, in my schooling, but it has something to do with uh, planetary formations. It has something to do with um, stars, even galaxies and black holes, and uh, kind of just the the overall cosmological universe, not on a quantum scale. Uh, I, I would love to talk to you guys about that. So that'll be Wednesday. It's going to be an open conversation. And then we push out into the following week where we have a bunch of other events. So um, go ahead, check it out, explore this app a little bit. Um, and always you could send me a DM here uh, or you can just, you know, say hello, call in sometime. And um, I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. Astro KB. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call in. Yay. That's exciting. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Hector. Thanks for providing this space for us to talk about. Um, for us to talk about space, of course. Of course. Very happy. Uh, picnic. Awesome. Uh, galaxies without dark matter. Interesting to look up information on for sure. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. I hope you get to get outside and look for some of these objects. Uh, I hope you get to see either the Whirlpool Galaxy or maybe some of these different space alignments that are happening. Um, And I hope this inspired you a little bit to maybe look up at the stars at night. All right, everyone. I will talk to you guys next time. And as always, Ad Astra. (laughs) 